Well, I'm going to tell you that uh, I have no plans to retire. I need to make that clear. I'll be 76 the end of this year, and I have more joy and enthusiasm than I think I've ever had. And uh, I have verses I pray over, asking God to give me energy and vitality and vision. So I'm of the philosophy that tired is biblical, but not retired. And so I can see some of you guys are a little older because you don't have a lot up here, and whatever you do have is a little gray. But let me tell you, some of your best years can be in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. There's a lot of young men out there that uh, grew up in dysfunctional homes, never had a dad, and you can be that spiritual dad for them. And uh, so I trust that, uh, that you'll keep fresh and flourishing in great verses, Psalm 92:14. They shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. I just, I just love that verse. So the topic uh, for this morning is uh, the pastor and his family. So we're going to kind of camp on a thought in one verse, and that one verse is 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. If you take your Bible or your app and turn there, 1 Timothy, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 8. It's a familiar verse. You know, it was Samuel Johnson that said, most people need not so much to be taught, but to be reminded. And I often think of that as, it's not a matter of, I just need to know more and more, I need to go to more conferences, I need to read more books, I need to hear more speakers. By God's grace, I need to start applying and responding to what I already know. And uh, so this is a verse I'm sure you've all read, and probably some of you have preached out of. 1 Timothy, chapter 5, and uh, verse 8. This is the um, ESV. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Providing for your relatives, for your family, especially your own family. In the message, use the word cares for the needs of his family. You know, and when you think about that, when I thought about it through the years, when I think provide for your family means to provide financially, right? Are you providing financially for your family? Are you taking care of their financial, material needs? They have a roof over their head, the bill's getting paid, uh, there's gas in the car, the insurance, you know, all the, the uh, provision, the material provision. But the more I thought about that, a husband does a lot, should do, by God's grace, a lot more than just provide financially. So here's a couple of thoughts. I think you provide emotionally for your family. When I have met men and members of their family who say, well, my dad provided for us financially, but he didn't provide anything emotionally. He just was emotionally absent. He worked all day. He was tired. In fact, to this day, with some of the guys I coach, I'm a life and leadership coach, They'll say, I just, I'm exhausted at the end of the day. And then we talk about, yeah, but your wife is also exhausted. And she's been home with the kids all day. And you come home and you want to veg and sit in front of the TV. And, and the kids want emotional engagement, but emotionally you're, you're shot. You don't have anything left. So I think we provide emotionally. And then we provide financially. It's nice 
If you're married, how many of you have kids under 12 years old? Any of you? Okay, well, quite a few of you. It's nice, it's wonderful if your wife can be home with those children when they're small. That by God's grace you're able to generate enough money, whether you need to work one job or two jobs, whatever it takes, that your wife can be home for the kids. Um, I was very fortunate that God provided for us for all those years when our kids were in uh, grammar school, and middle school, and high school, my wife was home. And then when they got you know, up into high school, then she took on some work. So you provide emotionally, you provide financially, which is the natural way to look at this verse. And then you provide physically. Physical affection. That's why I come up short. I didn't grow up in a, in a physically affectionate family. I can never recall a, a time when my mother or my father ever kissed me or hugged me. Just wasn't there with any of us. And I have two younger brothers, and I think we all to this day suffer because of that. That my dad wasn't physical with us. He provided financially. He did things with us, but he wasn't physical. And I've learned the hard way that it's especially important for daughters that their dad is physically affectionate with them. So you provide emotionally, financially, physically. And then you provide spiritually, obvious. That's, that's the obvious one. But it might not be so obvious. I mean, there's a lot of homes where the mother is the spiritual provider. As the dad is absent or the dad is busy or the dad is just not spiritual, so the mother fills it in and the mother's the nurturing one. I used to joke with my son, he's 40 years old now. And uh, when we, he loves sports. He's still hanging on to the Lakers. I, I tell him, Dan, turn it loose. The Clippers are the team, the Lakers, you know. I know I, maybe I'm treading on dangerous ground here. But you've got diehard Laker fans here? I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, we used to joke that when they put the camera on an athlete, they would, they would always say, Hi, Mom. I love you, Mom. And I said, Dan, have you ever in your life seen an athlete when the camera comes on and says, Hi, Dad. I love, what happened to all the dads? He said, Dad, when I become famous and the camera comes on me, that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, hi, Dad. Well, maybe because the dad is not the nurturer. The kids are more attached to the mother when they're hurt and so forth, but, um, but not the dad. You know, I learned something. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Turn to Deuteronomy for a minute with me. Once again, more reminded than being taught here. Chapter 4, I'm going to read, um, no, you know, I've got the wrong chapter, it's chapter 6, excuse me. So I'll read in verse 4, chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words which I command you this day shall be on your heart, in verse 7, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now watch what comes here. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The the culture that I grew up in, you taught your children by having daily devotionals. And so you created this little compartment over here where we get spiritual at the dinner table from five to six. Otherwise, nothing. Except we go to church on Sunday and after that, nothing. 
And what I see, and I didn't see it for a lot of years, these words shall be in your heart. First of all, it starts with me. I can't be talking and teaching something that's not in my own heart. And then you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you go to Walmart, when you're driving somewhere, when you're just living life in the, in the rhythms of your life. Teach them God's word. Teach them scripture. Teach them principles. And so I think that one of the mistakes, I made a lot of mistakes, so one of the mistakes I made when my kids were small is I relegated the spiritual teaching to devotions. I think, did my duty. We have devotions every day around the dinner table where I'm telling them to shut up, you know, and listen because we're reading God's word together. <laughs> and then I wouldn't talk about it. And now I'm, at my old age, I'm learning just that what that passage is saying is just weave them in to just the rhythms of your life when something's going on and, and so they see how the spiritual life relates to and attaches to everyday life. I think it's one of the issues today with a lot of people is their Christian experience is what happens when they're inside the four walls, but outside there's just there's, there's sort of a there's sort of a disconnect. And in verse, uh, if you go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter four and verse nine, there's something similar. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Your grandkids. How many of you have grandkids? Okay, we have seven. And I'm trying to do with the grandkids some of the things I didn't do with my own kids, and that's just talk about spiritual things and just the fabric of life. So you provide for your family emotionally, financially, Physically, spiritually, you provide time. I remember hearing the story about a mother who went down to a toy store. Both she and her husband worked. They didn't have a lot of time. So uh, she walked into the toy store and she said, I want to get this, this toy. I'm not exactly sure what I'm looking for, but I want to get this toy for my son. And I want, I want it to play music. I want it to entertain him. I want, it, I want it to educate him, you know, so he learns as he's growing up. I want it to challenge him. And she, she went on and on. And the guy was just kind of looking at her. And he said, ma'am, he said, excuse me, but, I, but what you're describing sounds like a parent. And we don't sell those here. <laughs> yeah, you want toys and... And that, isn't that what some of us do? We go out and buy stuff for the kids. Well, what they really want is us. They want time uh, with their dad. They want quality time. They want time to listen. All the things we talked about, the spiritually, physically, emotionally time. I think you provide for your family with encouragement. So you provide emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually time and encouragement. Are you, any of you familiar with uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message? Anybody? Okay, I really love it. I've been reading it probably for 15 years, and I memorize out of it. it just it, He has a great way. Now, you need to be careful because it's not a translation. What he's doing is he's translating ideas, not words, which means it's not a legit translation. So he'll take an idea and express the idea using different words, but I think he's still spot on with, with the idea. 
And so 1 Peter 3, 9 in the message says, Instead, bless. That's your job to bless. You'll get a blessing and you'll also be a blessing. So I remember the first time I read that, I started writing things down. What can I do to bless my kids? And there's a lot of things, but one of the things that I sort of gravitated toward and made it a commitment to the Lord is I would bless them through constant encouragement. That's one way I could bless them. Talk about, um, I think it's, um, I was going to say Gary Chapman, it's not Smalley. I think it's Gary Smalley wrote a book on the blessings, five blessings of the blessing. Yeah, excuse me? Okay, yeah. And uh, one of them is a preferred future. I believe in you. I mean, God's going to do some amazing things with your life. One of my kids, uh, Anna, she's 38, and she's just, just starting to come into her own. She's got, they've got four small kids. And um, to this day, she'll remind me when she was little how I would affirm her and encourage her and speak words of affirmation. That I can do. I just need to think of, and I wrote them cards. Every year I would write them a birthday card when they were smaller and tell them, you are amazing, you are, God's going to do some wonderful things. Just that, that constant encouragement. There's a little YouTube video. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Validation. Have you seen that video? You, got, you need to watch this. Go on YouTube sometime and just type in the word validation. What it is is this guy that's, that's validating parking tickets in a garage. And so people come up and they, they walk up and he's got his little stamp, you know, and say, I, I need to get validated. And so he looks at him and he said, you have amazing eyes. <laughs> Has anybody told you you have amazing eyes? Your smile is just... And they say, really? You really think that's... Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a, no question. And then he stamps the ticket and then the next person comes up and I need to get validated. And so he, he just finds something positive to say. Pretty soon there's like people lined up for blocks coming in to get their, their validation. And so the people upstairs in the business say, what's going on in the parking garage? People can't even pull their cars in there. There's people lined up for... So they go on, the guys come and say, you can't do this, you know, it's a parking garage. We're not psychiatrists, we're not therapists. And he said, has anyone ever... And then he starts validating them. They said, really, you really think that's true? And, and it just goes on and on. It's, it's funny, but there's a lot of truth there. People are hungry to get validated. Tell somebody that they're worthwhile, that they have that they have a future, that God's going to do something. And, I, and our kids are hungry for that. I mean, how many kids grew up in homes where they never hear anything positive? By God's grace, hopefully that's not your home. Another verse I like on this is Acts 20, verse 2, in the message. It says, traveling um, across the country from place to place, Paul gave constant encouragement lifting their spirits and charging them with fresh hope. I memorized that so I could just remember those three things. Paul gave constant encouragement, lifting their spirits and charging them with fresh hope. So these are all ways you can provide, emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually, time, encouragement. And you need to do it by God's grace, all the time, right? It's not just when you're on vacation or on your day off. It's just a matter, as I said, just kind of weaving it in. Daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly. Having stuff, you know, in your calendar where you're going to date your kids. When my kids were small, 
Thursday night was daddy dates. And so we rotated around. Like my son was the first Thursday, and then Anna, and then Sara, and then Karina, and then we start over. I, I, I look back and laugh how they would argue. It's my time, turn. You had your, no, no, you were last week. It's my time now. And, and I would do whatever they want. My son Danny would usually throw the ball or do something, with, with a, and he's still that way. The girls wanted to go shopping or go for a smoothie. And, um, and so those were those, those daddy dates, and they still to this day talk about those daddy dates. So I'm of the opinion if it's not in your calendar, it doesn't exist. And so if it's a matter of writing it down, I'm dating my wife every other Thursday, I'm, I'm taking my kids out to do whatever and actually physically put it in your calendar. Now let me share with you four things I think I did well and three things that I did not do well. First one is that I mentioned regular date nights with the kids and with my wife. By God's grace, I was very faithful. Number two, I think I did well. I provided so that my wife Susan could be at home when the kids were young. Number three, I went to all and every event, sporting event or musical thing that they had. If I was physically in town, I worked my schedule around to be there. When Daniel played tennis or when the girls played basketball, or in fact, I remember once um, when we lived in Palm Springs, I drove all the way from Palm Springs to Santa Barbara just to hear my daughter give a speech. Stayed overnight, had breakfast, and then drove all the way back home. Because that was important for her that her dad showed up and was there. Things I did not do well. I did not demonstrate physical affection the way I should have. To my wife, it's still a struggle for me to this day. I'm just not a touchy-feely physical person. And I pray and I weep that God will continue to, to uh, build that into my life. Number two, I did not do well when the kids were small. I did not weave the spiritual into the fabric of everyday life. I compartmentalized it with daily devotions. Number three that I did not do well, and I didn't keep a close eye on my kids' best friends. Boy, I learned um, when the kids get to be a certain age... They start taking their signals not, well, maybe, maybe they were never taking their signals from the parents, and it's debatable. When you thought you were in control, you know, I'm in control, and my kids listen to me and pay attention. Really. So, but when they get to be a certain age, their friends basically start setting their values. If their best friends have certain values, that's the direction they're going to go, regardless of what values you might have taught them. So I would do a much better job of of encouraging certain friendships, making sure I knew who their friends were, paying more attention to who they were hanging out with, what they were doing. So let me close with with, uh, two suggestions. Number one is create a a weekly schedule. And my coach and I refer to this as an ideal week where you are intentionally, purposefully putting in Daytimes, Sabbath, exercise. So your work doesn't take over your life. Um, the, in my coaching, I've been professionally coaching for 10 years now. The single biggest issue that every one of the guys that I've coached, with no exception, is they struggle with the daily demands of ministry. Um, there's just no end to people's needs. Uh, 
they need you, they need help, they need encouragement. They, they want to have their pastor, whether you're the lead pastor, the worship pastor, a staff pastor, whatever role you might have, um, they want you, they need you. But your family also needs you. And so it's, it's a delicate dance to divide that time so that you're working like 50, 60 hours a week. And my coach and I, I tell them between 50 and 60 hours, that's, that's okay. When you start getting up to 70, 80, 90 hours a week, you're, it's just a matter of time you're going to be in big trouble. And your family's going to be in trouble. But in order to keep it to 60 hours, you have to purposely plan. And there's two questions I ask them with, the, with this ideal week. How many hours a week uh, are you committed to work? And is your church culture okay with this? If you're on staff, talk with your lead pastor, whoever you report to. Are you okay if I work in that window of 56, no more than 60? And then when are you going to work those hours? So actually go into your calendar and say, I'm working here, I'm working here. You cannot just be available whenever someone calls you. Because, well, I'm the pastor. If they need me, I have to be available. That's the recipe for disaster. You will work 80, 90 hours a week if you're just, when, as anybody calls you, you're going to answer the phone. You will leave the dinner table. You will leave your devotions. You will cancel your daddy date. You will cancel your date with your wife because somebody in the church called you and wanted to talk to you. And what you have to tell them is, I'm not available on Thursday nights. Thursday nights I have other commitments. Unless you're going to jump off the bridge or slit your throat, you need to wait until tomorrow to talk to me, but you're not going to talk to me Thursday night. Or you have somebody else. You have a pastor on Thursday night that fills in for you. Your call gets forwarded. You have to come up with something. Because the people are burning out and crashing out there. Have you read Wayne Codero's book, Leading on Empty? Great book. That's the, that's the story with a lot of leaders, a lot of pastors today. They're leading on empty. Their fuel gate is all the way down in that little red zone with the little lights coming on in your dashboard. Years ago, I ran across in the Living Bible, the Old Living Bible, Psalm 139.3. Psalm 139.3, you chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment, you know where I am. I love that. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment, you know where I am. It's like you're going down the freeway. You know, you're trying to drive from Southern California to Phoenix or Las Vegas, and you're screaming along it, looking in your mirror to make sure there's not a car with lights on behind you blinking at you, 65, 70 miles an hour, and you know you're tired. Something inside you says you should pull over and just sleep for 15 minutes or pull into a rest stop, but you just keep pushing it down to the floor and just keep pushing through. And there's a chance that you're going to have an accident. So that's when I visualize I'm, I'm driving my, my car down the road of life, and something inside says, Dave, pull over to the side. You're exhausted. You're tired. You need to take a break. I can't take a break. I need to be in Phoenix in so many hours. I need to be in Las Vegas. So you keep pushing and pushing and pushing until something in the car or something inside of you just, just splits. And part of the reason this happens is because we want to please people, right? If Chris needs me, I mean, Chris is one of my, my best, and he gives money too. So that's another reason why I just can't ignore him. And so the Chris is in my church. I, just, I keep spending time with him. It's because I want to keep him happy. I don't want him mad at me. This comes up all the time in my coaching. How many guys I've coached that says, you know, my biggest issue is I want to please people. I read a quote, and this might, I don't know that he came up with it, but I really like it. It's by, I read it by Eric Geiger. He said, if your goal in life is to keep people happy, don't be a leader. 
sell ice cream. <laughs> Your goal in life cannot be to keep everybody happy for the simple reason it's impossible. No matter what you do as a leader or as a pastor, somebody's going to like it and somebody's not going to like it. And if you hold up your, your finger just to kind of, you know, hear the... Yeah, shut that thing off. Sorry about that. And, and hear uh, which way the political wind is blowing, that's just, that's just bad news. Sometimes you just stand up and say, listen, I know this is not popular. I know I'm going to be misunderstood. I know I'm going to be criticized. But as I prayed and thought and gotten counsel and talked to many of you, I strongly believe that this is what we need to do. And I know some of you aren't going to like it. Some of you might stop giving. Some of you might send me hate emails. And I, I'm okay with that. Because my goal is not to keep everybody in this church or everybody in this ministry happy. I need to honor God. And so, are my schedule just going to, going to kill me? It's going to kill me. It's going to kill my family. There's a line. You remember the movie Top Gun with Tom Cruise? When they did their crazy stunt, you know, and they came back and their commander was standing in front of them, it's one of the classic lines. He said, gentlemen, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. And so I would just change the word ego to calendar. Gentlemen, is your calendar, your schedule, writing checks that your body, your capacity, your family, sooner or later will not be able to cash? And one of the things that, that I think we overlook sometimes is uh, that emotional piece. But Bill Hybels wrote an article, and if you, wanna, if you want, if you email me, DaveCraft763 at gmail, I'll send it to you. I think it was called Fuel Gauges. And Bill Hybels crashed, like a lot of leaders crashed. I mean, just Wayne Clodero crashed, and that, out of that crash came his book, Leading on Empty. And what Bill Hybels discovered, he said, you know, I thought I had a physical fuel tank and a spiritual fuel tank. But what I overlooked is I had an emotional fuel tank. And even though physically and spiritually I was in top shape, emotionally I was drained. And I was not aware of the fact that when that emotional tank got empty, it impacted the other. So I was spiritually and physically tired as well, even though I, don't, I couldn't understand why. And so he was totally perplexed when he had his burnout because he didn't realize that he had an emotional fuel tank, and it was empty. And in the ministry, I mean, that's where a lot of the energy goes, just emotional energy of dealing with problems and listening to all the stuff people are going through, and then you, you carry it. I mean, in one sense, you should carry it. You should feel for them. You should be praying for them and interceding. But it wears you down. And so sometimes you need to say, you know, emotionally, I- I'm done. Physically, I, I mean, I've got physical strength, and spiritually, I'm doing fine. Mentally, I'm, but emotionally, I'm fried. I need to do something to address... How do I refill uh, my emotional tank? There's an article on my website if you want to check it out based on this concept. And the title of the article, if you, just, if you go to davecraft.org and type it in, is, is your cup, uh, I think it's called, is your cup empty or full? If you just type cup, C-U-P, in on the search line, it'll take you to it. So that's the first suggestion. Create an ideal week with accountability with your spouse so you are... Exercise, sleep, eating, not just fast food, but eating, date night, daddy dates, and the church basically doesn't run your life for you. And the second, and I'm ending here, the second is to cultivate the habit of being proactive, not reactive. I guess another danger, and I fall into it numerous times. 
Um, I respond to the phone, to the email, to somebody who wants my time, rather than saying, I need to think through. What are the most important things I need to do today, this week, this month, and not just respond to whatever need is out there? In other words, with God's grace, I need to be in the driver's seat of my schedule and think through and pray, who or what do I need to give attention to? In fact, there's a great book. Are you familiar with the name Michael Hyatt? Raise your hand if you know who Michael Hyatt is. Okay? He's one of the most prolific bloggers on planet Earth. Um, he was uh, for a number, was it Thomas Nelson? Was that his publisher? The, he was the CEO of Thomas Nelson. He said that there's a book called Essentialism. You'll find it on the website, but you can find it on Amazon. He said it was the best book he's read in the last five years. Essentialism. I think it's Greg McCowan, M-C-K-O-W-E-N. On this topic of being proactive and not reactive. So we've, we've, we've camped on just this one idea, 1 Timothy 5.8, of providing for your family. And you provide more than just financially. You provide emotionally, physically, spiritually, with time, encouragement. You provide by creating a week that's realistic where you're managing your hours. And you provide by being proactive, not just reactive. So I'm done.